I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. This week we are going to talk about All Saints Day. Uh, which might sound weird, but I promise it'll make sense later on. <laughs> but before we do that, uh, we got to talk about this really good app that we discovered this week and can't get enough of called Church Home. Uh, Matt, what what have been the highlights of this app for you so far? There are so many highlights. Um, so first of all, uh, let me just say, if you're not on Church Home already, you got to get on Church Home. It's really important <laughs> for your walk with Jesus and... Uh, it it makes your heart right. It gets you on the right path to God. I don't know how to talk like an evangelical anymore. Um, but uh, it's this real wild app uh, that basically is like, uh, it's like an app specifically for like a mega church, but there are all these like weird social functions of it that are really funny to mess with. Uh, so um, our friend Connor set up a really great group on the app called Christian communists for, um, for all of us <laughs> leftist Christians. Um, you can go, you join the app, you'd, uh, search for the Christian communist group. You can kind of be a part of it. And, uh, there's some conversations going on, some discussions about that good Christian communist life. Um, so that's fun. There are other, there are other groups you can be into like, uh, I don't know your purpose driven life or, uh, I don't know. Uh, youth group stuff uh but the the i think the craziest thing about this app is that um there's this whole feature in it where you can you can like post your like you can post your prayer request to this like twitter like feed and then people can pray for you based on the thing that you've said but um uh it's so hard to explain but but uh when they pray <laughs> for you the the app makes you hold down your two thumbs on these buttons on the screen and your phone will like vibrate at you. And then when you've kind of like filled up these two like weird little like prayer meters, you can let go. And then the app alerts the person, uh, the the person who who's issued the prayer request that they've been prayed for. Um, this is so insane. You can, really, you can, you can rack up those prayer points it's, pretty quick. It's uh, so if crazy. You know, if you know how to pray, you know? Yeah. There aren't actually prayer points, but it seems like there should be, right? Like, it seems like that's the thing that's missing from this app is that they're not sort of – they haven't gamified prayer enough. And uh, I'm expecting that in the next update, I think, from for prayer points that you can cash in for, like, a WWJD bracelet or something. Yeah, that's it. Um, <laughs> it's wild because – so you don't get prayer points, but it does tell you specifically who has prayed for you. So you can anonymously have a prayer, but you can't anonymously pray for someone. Uh, right. There's, there's all kinds of very weird um, slippages of forethought, I feel like, in this app. Uh, but it is very fun to play around on. Uh, yeah, it's pretty silly. I think that, like, okay, um, this is not a super hot take, actually. I think that the prayer part of the app is actually sort of nice. Um, like, I don't know. It's not the worst thing to pray for other people in the world, even though it's like, I mean, the things that people are posting are like real sort of things that they're doing in their life that like, you know, they're like, oh man, trying to get out of debt, pray for my husband or whatever. That's nice stuff. Like, why not? Um, the not nice thing I think as Dean reminded me though, is that this is definitely, um, one big sort of advertisement for this like mega church, which isn't great, but, um, 
I don't know, man. Uh, I guess we can just kind of like mess with it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's got to be some actually very creative ways to use this platform. Um, I feel like, I don't know, there's sort of two ways you could interact with this. One would be to just troll it really brutally, which would probably not be very nice, but maybe would uh, scratch a very weird itch. (laughs) Um, The other way, though, would be to try to like patiently try to engage certain evangelicals. I mean, there's all kinds of really weird conversations I was looking through today. They have a whole section that's just called generosity, and it's really kind of unsettling, actually, in some ways, because it's all based around tithing or conversations around giving and charity. But one of the top questions on it is about a guy who or is posted by a guy who says he's having trouble with his rent and he has a family and he's going to be homeless soon. And two people responded to it so far anyway, and they were both like, we'll pray for you. One of them linked like some kind of assistance group or something. Uh, but it's like very strange because there there are ways that people are actually trying to engage with a kind of problem of inequality in their community, apparently, um, but just don't seem to, you know, I mean, whatever. They're not socialists, so they don't have like a, a kind of structural analysis. So the, one productive way to potentially engage this app would actually to be to to find yourself in a big communist mission field uh, full of people just looking to solve these kinds of problems. Yeah, I think that is kind of a funny idea um, in a good way. I don't know. Uh, I prayed. Uh, I put a prayer request up there that just said, you know, to end white supremacy. And some people are praying for that. So, like, how? I don't know. Can't be all bad, right? I guess. <laughs> Though, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. When you when you download the app and you open it for the first time, you get this crazy trailer. Uh, it's just like a bunch of shots of like young people doing stuff um that is innocent enough to like a weird kind of ccm song and that is a a very big turnoff right away and also there's a ton of content that is made by the church and fed directly to the app but it's not like a um this isn't like a christian twitter or something where everyone's making content and sharing it within a certain frame or whatever it's like the church is trying to steer you in a certain direction and they just apparently don't have the moderating capabilities to recognize that like connor's trying to create communist groups there (laughs) so yeah uh it's all very confusing um yeah and also let me say too while i um why i i endorse maybe the prayer uh section of this app i also do not endorse any of the videos because they're probably all very bad <laughs> yeah uh, you probably don't need any of those knows? videos <laughs> yeah who knows <laughs> i haven't watched them and guess what i'm not going to so that's where the uh, review of this app ends but there you go get on there join the christian group the christian communist group and uh get in that get in that conversation get in the communist mission field you know like, got to change hearts and minds. Yeah, uh, I don't think the creators of this app ever expected to have to deal with a ton of communists on the internet uh, suddenly downloading their app. So that is a very funny problem uh, that I will be curious to see how they <laughs> interact with. Uh, yeah, totally. And let me just say that there are actually a lot of uh, folks on here. Like, there's, I would say, more than... Yeah, there's probably about 20 of us. There's probably about 20, uh, 20 people from the old Christian communist Twitter crew uh, that showed up on this uh, app. So get, get on there and uh, see what it's all about. The group is like more active than the official groups, which is my favorite thing about it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. It's like in the top 10 <laughs> groups, I think, on the app right now. <laughs> uh, so there you go. Keep it trending. You know, season you those dislodge memes. Jill Osteen. That's right. Season <laughs> yeah. those means. All right. Uh, all right. <laughs> I'm glad that we both uh, we both agreed that this is the time to move we on. We knew we knew it was over. <laughs> <laughs> so we're really here to talk about All Saints Day, as I mentioned above uh, or before. So All Saints Day is a, a Christian celebration um, where we remember important people who have lived really dynamic or, or faithful and inspiring lives before we have. And it's a time when Christians also remember their own loved ones who've passed away or, you know, we we recognize that there's a tradition of human beings who've lived on this earth that we are involved in. Um, But it's also a time that because of all of that, we can remember and draw strength from the wives of of radical Christians who've shown us the way a little bit. So, I mean, we, we thought it might be interesting to just kind of talk a little bit about a few saints that we don't think get a whole lot of press, but are, are worth talking about anyway. Yeah, and when we say saints here, we mean, like, 
not like big S Saints, but like a little less Saints, maybe, right? Yeah. Okay. Saints with a dollar sign. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All Saints Day is kind of an interesting day. Um, I don't know how y'all do it at your church, Dean, but at my church, there's kind of like a special liturgy and people kind of name their um, family members who might have passed on, who've been really important to them. And that's kind of a cool thing. Um, I just like the idea of recognizing that, like, um, we're not the first people to kind of sit at this table and tackle the sort of Christian problems that we have. And um, I remember like, so being in, being in church on Sunday, I was like sitting there kind of thinking through this and like listening to people sort of name their, uh, their deceased loved ones. And I was thinking about the ways that the Magnificast is like kind of a perpetual all saints day. Um, on almost like every episode, well, every episode that we're not like talking to somebody else, we usually highlight a current uh, or past Christian who is living out a radical type of faith that um, we should remember and think about and, you know, come to terms with maybe. Um, sometimes this might come off as like a show that's just like a show and tell kind of exercise where we just say like, oh, look, this big long list of historical Christians who've engaged in leftist politics. However, I think that uh, All Saints Day kind of provides a spiritual practice um to this type of remembering and this type of naming people, um, not just like show them off academically or whatever, but to think about what those Christians might mean for us as people practicing Christianity. I think for Dean and I, finding these Christians who we can connect with politically gives us a sense of permission. Like um, so many reactionary forces out there um, always are trying to maintain that Christians can't be communists, anarchists, or socialists. The saints that we talk about on our podcast uh, give us a kind of callback that we can use to live our own lives as faithful Christians and also as leftists. So in this episode, we're going to talk through a pretty short litany of some specific Christian leftists uh, who we might continue to draw inspiration from and who we haven't really got to talk about um, on the podcast, or maybe we've only mentioned passing or something. Yeah, and we also went out of our way to try to find, I guess, you know, lefty radical saints that are not people that usually get press. I mean, there's a ton of them that are totally worth talking about and worth reading a lot more, for sure. Um, but there is also a lot of people who have been involved in struggles that uh, don't get that same kind of press for a lot of, of reasons. Um, so, you know, we could have done an episode where we're just like, hey, have you ever heard of Camilo Torres? Well, you should. And I don't know, we should probably do that episode at some point. He's a very, very cool and inspiring person. Um, but you can find a lot more about him out just by Googling in an afternoon. Uh, and we thought maybe we'd pull out some people who are a little harder to uncover, um, but are still very important. So maybe we could just dive in here with the first person we wanted to pull out, who's a woman, woman named Kathleen Schultz. And we have mentioned her in the past a long time ago go in the context of Christians for Socialism. Um, but if you don't remember her, here's kind of a brief overview, and then we'll just chat a little bit about why she's so great. So she was born in 1942. She's still alive. She lives in Detroit. I was just talking to her on the phone like a week ago. <laughs> um, I'm, uh, I'm writing a, an article about her for Sojourners. Um, fingers crossed it all works out. But in any case, uh, she was born in 1942. She's lived most of her life in Detroit, and she is a member of an order called the um, Immaculate Heart of Mary. And the reason that we think she's so great is because she was the National Executive Secretary for Christians for Socialism in the United States for about a decade. So what that means is she was essentially the principal organizer and um, kind of decision maker in that organization. There was a lot more to it, like there was a whole committee of people involved, uh, but she was like paid to work there and that was her job was organizing Christians for Socialism. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, Matt, uh, you know a little bit about Kathleen and have uh, chatted with her as well. Um, what do you think makes her a saint that is somebody to kind of keep in mind today? I think that we could say a few things about Kathleen. I mean, she she was an organizer who was really active in the 70s. So um, a lot of the perspective that we have on her, I think, is sort of like just thinking through like, you know, all of the work that she did in the past and how cool that all is. I mean, she devoted a lot of time to the organization, uh, to Christians for Socialism, you know, like she spent a lot of time making sure those things happened, not only as just like an organizer, but also as like kind of an archivist in a certain sense. Um, I mean, she sent you and I both just like these big boxes of books on more than one occasion 
to kind of like spread spread the word about like what happened. I think that she is definitely one of these types of people that we could consider as saints because she is um, a person who dedicated her life to the Christian and socialist dialogue, to activism, to organizing people, to um, spreading uh, a type of socialism uh, and a type of Christianity that are compatible. Um, and also she like, I don't know, had the forethought to think through that other people in the future would be interested interested in this, and uh, she decided to keep all those documents, and that was really cool of her. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. And what I love about her, too, is that she never just quit after doing something really taxing. Um, I mean, so Christmas Research was unfolded in the 80s, right around kind of the Reagan election. Um, And when I asked her about that, she said it didn't fold in a way that was bitter or you know people weren't like um i don't know pissed about it or whatever uh she she uses the phrase of everybody kind of felt like we'd had a good run like we did this for a really long time we did a lot of really important stuff and now it's time to do some other stuff and so she ended up just doing all kinds of other activism and different kinds of work in detroit uh she worked on some uh, criminal justice issues, trying to desegregate like uh, jury selection processes and stuff like that, which were super racist in Detroit. Um, she like worked on housing issues, which became more and more important, obviously, as manufacturing collapsed there. Essentially, uh, just I don't know. Like, if there was a struggle going on Detroit in Detroit, it just seems like Kathleen was in the middle of it one way or another. And I love imagining this nun who I don't know. She like she became a nun when she was eighteen years old and threw herself into a really radical life right away, basically, um, and then just sort of never looked back. Uh, but if you talk to her, she doesn't sound like some kind of wild. I don't know super intense personality she's just like a very responsible nice person who wants to share some things about you know what's going on in the world and like especially she wants to hear from other people about what they think and i don't know she's got a really inspiring presence i think by virtue of having been an organizer for so long yeah i like that way i like the way that you put it like she's not just she doesn't have a really intense personality like she's not like a a big personality or something. She is definitely a person that's like ready to do just sort of like the, the boring work of organizing. And I like yeah. that about her so much. <laughs> yeah. I like to, uh, here's another thing that I think she has at least, at least taught me directly. Um, I was talking to her a bit about Christians for socialism a while back, uh, in Chile and just trying to get a sense of what it was like and hear from people that she knew and stuff like that. And, I kept referring back to this document written by the priests, the Declaration of the 80, about how they were going to support the Allendea government. And she was like, yeah, I mean, that's really important. And those priests were really cool. But the important thing is they felt that they had to make a declaration like that because there was a huge popular movement. And that's the important part of the story, that there were lots and lots of regular people mobilized in society who believed in socialism. So many of them, in fact, that a bunch of priests had to respond to them. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, actually, that's a good way of framing how the world works. It's not just built around like documents and authority figures. It's like there's there's people in the world and uh authorities have to respond so i think just to maybe give folks an idea of even how she writes and thinks i have a a pretty neat document that she wrote just this year for her order um the ihm sisters were putting out a bunch of documents about specific things that her uh, that that order is kind of devoted to or has interacted with and she was tasked with writing an essay on feminism and how the order related to it uh the whole thing is totally worth reading i mean it's it's a fascinating history nonetheless that she's pulled together like (laughs) independent of everything else that's important to read um but the way that she frames it specifically is just very kathleen (laughs) uh because it has a real rhetorical flair but it's also always pointing you to all kinds of other resources that you can go to and always pulling things back into like an activist kind of of mindset of like what would we do about this and so in the conclusion to the uh, article um she or to the essay she writes this as we started out in this essay we sought to envision the arc and its bending of the essay 
Now, as we conclude, we know uh, that intention and action, the means of bending the arc towards justice in our time, must follow. As an encompassing movement of inclusion, action on behalf of justice will always mean leaving no one and no part of life out of our concern until our world bends graciously into the fullness of radiant justice. Uh, and I just feel like that is so great because right after saying that, she goes on to kind of make a, uh, some more pronounced or like practical um, suggestions. But the way she leads you into it is to say, OK, we've thought this far together. Um, now let's think about how to actually apply this in our world. Like she's always thinking with a kind of organizer's mindset, uh, even right now at age 76. So, yeah, just a person that I think is really inspiring and uh, a saint, if there ever was one, for sure. So next in the, I guess, like litany of saints that we're kind of laying out here um, <laughs> is uh, a kind of a callback to an episode we did a long time ago. Um, a, uh, a guy who used to be a priest but is no longer a priest named Luis Halandoni. Uh, Halandoni is a Filipino former priest. I don't know if he'd even identify as a Christian anymore, but he definitely was for a time. Um, and if you want to know more about him specifically or sort of like his whole situation, you can go back and check out episode 11, um, which is so long ago. Uh, scroll <laughs> scroll through that, that feed. Um, so in 1972, uh, the then Father Luis Halandone began organizing an underground network of Christians in the Philippines called Christians for National Liberation. The Christians for National Liberation played a pretty important uh, public and financial role for another organization in the Philippines called the New Democratic Front of the Philippines, or the NDFP. Uh, the NDFP are like the, they're not the Communist Party, but they have sort of, uh, they're like uh what happened to the Communist Party sort of later in the Philippines, um, and they became sort of like a, a really Maoist-influenced movement. Looking back on Halandoni's work, the NDFP says, Halandoni was one of the pillars of the Communist movement who helped unite the progressive and the revolutionary Catholic and Protestant church people. After his work with the CNL, he became the chairperson for peace talks between the NDFP and the government of the Philippines, um, and then... Uh, after Halandoni left the priesthood, he became more directly associated with the NDFP. He found his place in the struggle as someone negotiating peace on the side uh, of the communists. So uh, Luis Halandoni is a really interesting Christian figure, one that like um, went from clergy member to sort of layperson to full-on revolutionary, I suppose. Um, I think he's a really important figure for Christian leftists because... He demonstrates that Christians like do have a place in the struggle against imperialism. He wasn't someone that was going to sit idly by and like you know wait for I don't know something else to happen. Uh, he actively <laughs> actively supported guerrilla uh, guerrilla warfare. Like that was a thing that uh, the NDFP the NDFP did, and uh, something that like he like helped fund. Uh, there's like a really interesting story uh, about the ways that uh, Christians for national liberation funneled a lot of money uh, to the NDFP. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, go listen to episode 11 and check that out. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's, uh, it's cool. Uh, I think it's important for me to list him among sort of like these saints that we find important in our lives as, as leftists and Christians, um, because he is a Christian who is, um, wrestling kind of actively with the, um, I like with coloniality and with imperialism that is, um, you know usually Christianity is just kind of complicit with and, uh, you know, or responsible for. Um, so it's helpful to see a Christian who is uh, actively organized against imperialism in a way that is um, militant, that, like, you know, they're willing to really um, step up for this kind of thing. Uh, Dean, what do you think about Helen Dunny? Yeah, I mean, he is an amazing figure for sure. Uh, I remember um, <laughs> reading a little bit about him in the past, like, so he didn't start out as a radical Maoist or communist or communist adjacent person. He just started out as a priest who was organizing peasants because peasants needed to have an advocate. I mean, that's the story you hear all over the place in Latin America and elsewhere. Uh, and through that, he ended up meeting a bunch of communists who coincidentally also cared about peasants not getting, you know, bowled over by a, a American imperialism and a military regime. And I think that having the courage to understand when you're actually on the same side as someone else is really difficult. 
And I think it's really impressive that he was able to do that as a clergy person. And I mean, there's lots and lots of courageous things that he's done. I mean, being a clergy person and talking to communists is a big deal, but then eventually leaving the clergy because you feel that's important is a very big deal. Uh, being part of the Christians for National Liberation and believing that Christians could actually have a, a place in the struggle, that's a very courageous thing. And like you were just mentioning, Matt, having a uh, a role in these peace talks is a really um, like powerful, courageous commitment. Like It takes a lot of guts, I guess, to have all of those kinds of, um, of hopes in the world and to pivot from those hopes to other kinds of hopes when you feel like you have to. Um, I think that's something that Hollandone's life just seems to me to illustrate um, the importance of being sort of uh, committed and also um, flexible when the struggle needs you to be. Yeah. Um, something you just said a minute ago, I mean, I think kind of emphasizes um, why I like Hollandone so much and why I think that he's important um, that he recognized that he was on the side of the peasants um, and I think that's something that the church, like as an institution, has a hard time figuring out um, that it really should be on the side of the peasants when it often is not. And his sort of expression of, you know, even being like, like even negotiating for peace, but not just like a really like milk toast piece of like, I don't know, can't we all just stop fighting or whatever, but like right. arguing for peace, but on the side of the NDFP, I think is really telling of his character but also of the way that i mean i think christians should act like um (laughs) arguing just for like you know reconciliation or whatever is uh i mean fine but if you're not going to argue on the side of the people who are actually oppressed like what are you even doing right uh he also i should say has a twitter account and it is very funny <laughs> because a lot of it is him starting tweets with the word condemn or uh, like <laughs> congrats. <laughs> like it's just a series of um, like verbal commands related to different things that ha- that are happening in the world. And I appreciate that aesthetic a lot. <laughs> That's just evidence of his good um, negotiation skills. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah. Just looking through a few here. Here's a uh, November 6th condemn in the strongest uh, terms the extrajudicial killing of a, a lawyer i guess um <laughs> some other ones condemning a bunch of massacres that have happened uh <laughs> he's got a, a commemoration of um allende so yeah just you know trying to pull everybody back to the struggle in the midst of the, the social media uh scramble i think is important <laughs> yeah it makes sense a lot of things to condemn out there <laughs> that's right well, I guess moving on, even one more. Um, this is my other contribution to the conversation, and then I'll let Dean have another shot, maybe, at, uh, in addition to the <laughs> list of saints. Um, this is a person who I just found out about uh, last week as I was doing some research with regards to the uh, uh, the Young Lords in Chicago. Um, so this is uh, someone who I've just learned about, but I'm like now very impressed with and very interested in, and uh, unfortunately can't find a whole lot of information out about their life. Um, but, uh, there is a pastor from Chicago in the seventies named Reverend Bruce Johnson. Um, so I can't really speak to exactly how radical his politics were or whether or not he was actually a communist, but he did some things that Christians should definitely think of. I think, um, some real similarities with Helen Doney in the sense of being on the side of a certain people. Bruce Johnson was the pastor of Armitage Avenue United Methodist Church in Chicago during like the late sixties. Um, if you know anything about the history of Chicago or the history of Midwest, the sixties were a pretty tumultuous time (laughs) where, um, I don't know, lots of gentrification, um, lots of corruption, lots of white supremacy, uh, et cetera. Um, Johnson's church was in the Lincoln park neighborhood and was, um, eventually seized by Chacha Jimenez, uh, and the young Lords, uh, Chacha Jimenez was the sort of leader of the young Lords, um, in Chicago, at least, where he was part of the sort of the founding of it. Um, the Young Lords uh, transformed uh, Bruce Johnson's church into a, quote, people's church. And the whole story is so interesting. I love everything about it. We should clarify that uh, this people's church is different from the one we talked to with uh, A.E. Uh, Smith, the, the one we talked to Daryl Wanzer Serrano about. Oh, yeah. Dang. There's so many different people's churches. <laughs> there are. Uh, but we talked about the Young Lords taking over a church in New York. Yeah. Um, 
in calling it the People's Church, but this is a, a different one that the Young Lords also took over in Chicago. Yeah, different different uh, group of Young Lords, but sort of same idea. I mean, the story is actually, it's, it's really interesting. So if you go back and listen to the Young Lords episode with Daryl Wanzo Serrano, the situation is really, really similar, except uh, it ends way differently. If you'll recall, um, the Young Lords, when they uh, seized the church in New York, in East Harlem, the church was very displeased about this, and they didn't want them to do that, as I guess you might imagine. However, uh, in Chicago, at the Armitage Avenue United Methodist Church, uh, the Young Lords uh, just kind of, like, took it over. Um they wanted to do a handful of things, like provide some different sort of social services at that church. Uh, like they wanted a free daycare and health clinic and they wanted to feed kids out of it. Um, things that churches like ought to be doing anyways, uh, but the Young Lords wanted to do it specifically. Um, seems like you should let people do that. Just got to get those volunteers, you know. Um, <laughs> anyways, so the Young Lords, like they uh, seized the church and then they transformed it into a people's church. Um, so at first... Some members of Johnson's congregation uh, called the police on the Young Lords, saying, like, you know, they shouldn't be there. Um, But others did not. Uh, However, when uh, when the police showed up, Reverend Johnson told the police uh, that Jimenez and the Young Lords had his permission to be in the church. And the cops stood down. They they didn't, like, you know, do anything because the pastor said that it was chill. It's pretty neat. Yeah, it is. It's like I think that's the best thing that you could have done in that situation. Um it's so good. So later, uh, after that all happened, the congregation actually partnered with the Young Lords to implement their social programs at the church. And um, all kinds of really interesting things happened as a result. Uh, for example, uh, they, uh, the Young Lords, um, they're uh, on like a, a website that kind of details some of the history. They uh, mentioned this really interesting meeting that happened at the People's Church uh, between a few architects, one of which was Buckminster Fuller, which is like a really <laughs> weird sort of thing to happen. But anyways, Buckminster Fuller met with the Young Lords at the People's Church, which is a crazy sentence. Gosh. And they they like uh, they drew up these like plans for like a uh, for like public housing. Um and uh, I would love to know what those looked like. Um, but yeah. Mr. Fuller had some really interesting design philosophies. Um, but anyways, they proposed the plans to the um, to like Mayor Daly, who was the um, mayor of Chicago at the time. And they were just like, no, sorry, we can't do this. Um, <laughs> so anyways, that's a really wild story. Um, but I don't know, man, like. Think, think about that pastors like let people come to your church if they want to if they want to feed kids in your church i guess you should probably let them um you could attract the uh the foremost architects of your time if you do <laughs> that's true get all those architects in church <laughs> i mean it's so it's such so i mean qu- a quick contrast though like the the situation in new york is way different because the people uh the con- that congregation in new york like they want them out right like they and the right. police end up evicting them from the church but like i don't know just think of like how silly of a situation that is like people are like showing up at your church like attending church there because that's what happened um and like wanting to be a part of your congregation and to use your building to do something really good in the world and you would and like why would you ever say no to that that's just a weird thing there are reasons they said no but they're like political reasons and not actually good christian reasons um yeah so uh more on johnson though uh so chacha jimenez reports that uh that bruce johnson's cooperation with the young lords may have come at a pretty high cost uh this is where the story gets kind of uh dark uh bruce johnson and his wife eugenia were murdered in their home in 1969 um and that is terrible it was um i don't want to say exactly all the things about that because it's really terrible um but you can look it up, I suppose, if you want to. Um, the Their murder is still unsolved. They never really found anybody responsible for it. Um, after their murder, Jimenez published an article in a Young Lord's newspaper saying that the brutal murder of Bruce and Eugenia Johnson is meant as a warning to all people fighting for their just rights. These murders show to what vicious lengths the ruling class will go to prevent the growth of our just struggle. So, uh, Bruce Johnson uh, helped the Young Lords, um, helped them do sort of like things that were uh, contributing to the the autonomy of their community, to the sort of self-ownership of the like the Puerto Rican people of their neighborhood. Um, but he paid a huge price to help the Young Lords. Um, so Johnson's a Christian who demonstrates like what it looks like to be on the side of the people, again, just like Colin Doney does. Um, he also demonstrates what kind of costs can come with that. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, too, because I was reading a little bit more about that after you sent me some of this uh, story, Matt. And 
Um, like the police, I guess, just didn't really investigate their murder, which is absurd because I yeah, mean, it's bad. It's bad anyway. Obviously, that the police don't investigate it, but also uh, bad because they're like good, nice people just trying to help other people in Chicago um, have access to services that they need to live right and that's ultimately what got them murdered um i think that's pretty crazy that uh, i don't know you you could probably write a very very sad and troubling book about how many christians were murdered in like the 60s and 70s especially by the u.s government uh both like within and outside of their borders yeah i think that you really could um <laughs> uh yeah the their murder is really a troubling situation um there are like two sort of competing theories about maybe who was behind them um one is that it would, it was like the mafia in chicago and that they were somehow questioning their authority in this neighborhood or something um and the other is that like maybe it was the you know the fbi or it was the police themselves um i think i i mean who can really say i guess um yeah i don't know fair point <laughs> yeah um the uh the article on the Young Lords website, though, does mention that, like, um, some people think it was the FBI because, like, three months later, Fred Hampton was killed. So it's sort of like, you know, same place, same time ish. Um, mm. So I don't know. I mean, like, I don't I don't know who did it, but um, they definitely were good people and they shouldn't have been killed. <laughs> That's all I can right. say about that. <laughs> but they live they live these kind of lives that I think are really good. Like, again, they're they were on the side of the people in that community um even when it might have like lost them congregants or whatever and good yeah i mean they're definitely like martyrs in in every way yeah all right so there's a bunch more people that we could probably talk about but i wanted to mention somebody who i actually don't have a ton of things to say about but i think is important to bring up nevertheless um there is information about her in the world uh but it is hard for me to track down so if anybody else knows more about this actually please write to us but there is a woman another nun a franciscan named diane driffenbrock and she was a nun from the midwest she was born in 1929 in indiana um she ended up getting a PhD in mathematics um, from the University of, of, uh, of Illinois. So there you go, Matt. Congrats. Yeah. Um, your alma mater. We're, and, we're alumni. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Together. <laughs> That's pretty neat. Uh, a couple of very good socialist Christians coming out of there. Um, and she taught at a bunch of places, but she ended up living in Milwaukee. And the where it gets where the story gets really wild is uh, she got super invested in the socialist party USA. And in 1980, she ran as their vice presidential candidate alongside uh, Norman Thomas, who was a Presbyterian pastor um, in the United States presidential election. Uh, Obviously, she did not win. (laughs) But in any case, uh, she's a really fascinating person, I think. Um, I was trying to find a few uh, a few more articles that might detail more about her life. Um, There was one article I found that mentioned a, a debate that she was in where she had like the whoever this was who was writing it said that she actually was not like super impressive she was like a little bit mousy um which i can appreciate (laughs) just a a really sweet nun who wanted to be a socialist i can get down to that um and she also uh she was like um I guess part of of a campaign that really sort of turned things around for the socialist party in the 80s uh they weren't really getting any press uh before that um for a long time after being you know a pretty significant force in the early 20th century so kudos to to her and norman thomas on that i mean i think there's a lot to be said about some problems in the socialist party at least for me (laughs) at that point in time um i mean i'm a i'm a good communist so i can't be too excited about them uh but i can't be very excited about her uh diane Druffenbrock, just a, a nun who felt like she needed to commit herself to the struggle um you know curiously around the same time as somebody like kathleen was running christians for socialism so um i think just a really interesting example of somebody who saw a, a political vision growing out of her life and work her religious vocation in particular i'd vote for <laughs> yeah for sure <laughs> the pastor nun ticket uh is pretty wild yeah pastor <laughs> presbyterian pastor and also catholic nun is <laughs> as ecumenical uh, i'm sorry and they're also socialists is as ecumenical as you get <laughs> it's uh through the roof ecumenical 
Yeah, I think there was that thing. Who said this? Oh, it was uh, Herbert McCabe. Um, he has a quote somewhere about how the the next Reformation would have to be a class-based Reformation because the doctrinal differences are pretty much irrelevant, but the class differences are getting like more and more important each day. And I think this is like a perfect example. Like they're just, you know, on the same side, <laughs> part of the same church. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, I cannot get excited about the filioque, um, but I can get excited about <laughs> class. So uh, I agree with McCabe. <laughs> yeah, uh, I wish I had more to report about her or, you know, writings that she had, had done or whatever. And unfortunately, I don't. But um, nevertheless, just the fact that she existed in the world, I think, um, is really important. And and she's also like uh, something of a, um, I don't know how to put it, like a symbol like so many of these people are of the histories that still have to be captured and, and retold, I think. Uh, I mean, if you're like a really good archivist, I'm sure you could find loads of stuff about her um, all over, like whether you're talking to the Franciscans or talking to the Socialist Party. Um, you know, she was part of institutions that record history, uh, but we don't we just don't have any like popular tellings of those stories. Um, and I think for me, at least uh, kind of making a, a meta point about this episode, I guess um, one reason I think that keeping these saints in mind is that even when you have kind of a, a little bit of information about them, there's something so important about that little bit. Like it's a very, very significant uh, spark or something like that that you could maybe like fan into a larger flame or something. Yeah, I think so too. Um, again, it's like an idea that gives you permission. Like um, a Presbyterian and a nun uh, ran uh, for office as socialist in the United States. And I think that should... Um, Give us permission to do the same. I mean, I don't know whether or not we want to like engage in electoral politics is a whole other thing altogether. But um, it's just like good. Like they are public people who are socialists and Christians and like they were cool with it. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the beginning of a joke. It does sound <laughs> like a joke. It sounds, yeah. like the, it sounds like the beginning of a joke. Yeah. Like uh, uh, a Presbyterian pastor and, and a Catholic nun walk into a socialist party meeting. Um, I don't know what the punchline is, but it's a very good joke. Yeah, you're right. It is a good joke. <laughs> uh, tweet us the punchline. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Then we'll know how many of you actually made it this far in this episode. <laughs> that's right. Uh, when you Before you got distracted on church home. Yeah, if uh, anyone makes it past church home, it's surprising to me. Um, y'all, can you pray for me on church home, though? Uh, I think that's important. <laughs> um, as we've been talking, I've gotten several more notifications that uh, I have been prayed for. So <laughs> Nice. Well, the even... ending. Yeah, it's going to be over soon, um, I think. <laughs> okay, um, well, the last saint that we kind of have on our list here is um, a pretty interesting character in, in uh, United States history and another... Uh, and another Christian socialist, um, another person who even um, ran for office as a Christian and a socialist. And that's so fun. Um, uh, this person is George W. Woodby. Uh, so he was born in 1954. Woodby was a really influential black pastor and socialist. Um, like all sort of like black pastors and socialists during this time, uh, he was, um, I don't know, constantly dunking on Booker T. Washington. No one, uh, Dean and I were kind of just like looking through a few, uh, different people who we knew, uh, and trying to decide who we wanted to include in this episode. And, um, no one likes Booker T. Washington. Um, anyways, <laughs> important, important note. I don't have a problem with myself, but, uh, other folks, uh, have some salient points. Um, so George, George W. Woodby, uh, he joined the Socialist Party of the United States and was even nominated to run as vice president. <laughs> uh, it's, it's so interesting to me how this happens. He, um, he published a bunch of books and like pamphlets on socialism, um, including a few that were specifically about reconciling socialism and Christianity. There was a time when he sort of dropped out of uh, being like a pastor and just became like a socialist organizer. But then later he returned to it um, later in his life. As you can imagine, um, being black and also being a socialist, uh, he was met with a lot of police violence on a number of occasions. There's a few different places that say that he was just like in and out of jail and definitely was like physically assaulted by police. Um, and uh, he did all kinds of sort of things to um, get people like riled up about that. Even uh, there was like some protests that he planned and he even um, 
he took some of these cases to court and uh, lost, but still didn't nonetheless. Woodby is a really interesting figure because he like has a lot to say. I mean, he's a he's a pastor, and I think he talks like one in some really interesting ways. Yeah, for um, sure. So, some of the quotes that we found from Woodby were so fantastic. So uh, here's something that Woodby says about Marx that I really kind of thought was interesting. Marx. The greatest philosopher of modern times belonged to the same wonderful Hebrew race that gave to the world Moses, the lawgiver, the kings and the prophets, and Christ, the son of the highest, uh, who together gave us the Bible that we claim teaches socialism. Doubtless, Marx, like other young Hebrews, was made acquainted with the economic teachings of Moses and all the rest of the Old Testament sages and prophets, whatever we find him believing in after life. If we are able to show that the Bible opposes both rent, interest, and profits, and exploiting the poor, that stands just where the socialists do. Um, Woodby is a great, a great sort of like character that uh, really emphasizes that um, his socialist ideas kind of grow out of his Christianity, and um, that is something that I think uh, is well. I mean, it's something that we like to talk about on the show for sure because I think it does for both of us. But um, he can say it in a really eloquent way. <laughs> yeah, for sure. He's also really fascinating, I think, because he was part of a radical wing within the Socialist Party on a number of issues. Um, so he was radical on the question of uh, immigration, for example. So the Socialist Party had a bunch of arguments um, within the party about how they should feel about immigrants and you know what they should do about them or whatever. And surprise, there were a lot of racists in the party. Um, and would be constantly stood up for immigrants and made it really clear that he felt like any socialist cause worth its name would be anti-racist and would be welcoming and hospitable, which was a pretty wild thing to say back in the early 20th century. Um, so that's pretty cool. And he also had a lot of uh, associations with the IWW, um, which is pretty fascinating. He was a, a speaker at some IWW meetings. And for people who don't know much about the IWW, they were a, a radical um, offshoot of the Socialist Party as well, full of people who did not, um, let's say, were not uh, polite members of the Socialist Party, to, to say the least. Um, so I think it's pretty fascinating that he ended up adjacent to all these uh, further and further left um kind of portions within the party and nevertheless tried really hard to like be um be an active member within it uh he was like the only black delegate to the socialist party um for a long time and uh yeah just a really really um a really amazing uh attempt at synthesizing christianity and socialism both in his uh writing and in his life cool so this is i mean not an exhaustive list but um if we were at church right now, kind of thinking through um, the um, the Christian saints who've gone before us, these are definitely some people that I would have put on the list or I would have kind of like mentioned in the liturgy. Yeah. And some who are still around, right? Like, uh, yeah, totally. Some who've gone before us and some who are still like shining light for us a little bit. And uh, we should <laughs> keep keep following that path together. So again, these aren't really people just to show and tell, even though this was kind of an eclectic show and tell of like some folks that um, you probably don't ever hear about with regards to Christianity and the left. But uh, these are people who I think should give us permission to live our lives as people who are uh, Christians and leftists um, and are not, you know, just sort of like going through the motions of either, but faithfully um, affirming both of those things at the same time. Um, I think that like, I mean, each one of these people have, you know, sort of a different take and a different kind of place that they find their politics fit into their uh, religion. Um, in a few of these different cases, though, like Helen Done, like he kind of abandons his like role as clergy. But um, and, and that's fine. Like that was something that he had to do in, I think, his own life. But I, I think that it's really important that we find more people that we can kind of draw from who do both of these things at the same time, who aren't just socialists or just christians but are both all at the same time and they kind of find these things as um mutually affirming ideologies yeah i think so and i think uh whenever i think about history I and mean, i always think about a quote from walter benjamin um where he has this understanding of history he says there's two ways of looking at it one is as a chemist and one is as an alchemist and he says if you look at history as a chemist you're interested in the um 
the sort of component constituent parts, you know, just the the boring kind of molecules that make up an event. But if you're interested in history as an alchemist, then you're interested in the transformative parts of it, you know, the sparks that are flying off of those uh, those chemical reactions and what's being produced. And I think having a kind of alchemical view of uh, Christian history and saints, both past and present, um, and comrades that we know just in like our own personal life is a really important thing. Like to see history and to see our own interactions in a way that's dynamic and productive and not just built by kind of dead letters or, um, you know, like a, a decaying or ossifying um, world around us or something is really important because the struggle is still alive. And that's what the saintly tradition is always trying to do. Like, um, at least in the in the Catholic tradition, um, the way I've always understood saints is as uh, people that you could talk to, right? That death isn't the end, that even geographical distances are not the end. Um, saints do all kinds of weird stuff like bilocating and whatever. Um, there's this real commitment to the idea that like um, the communion of saints is something that trans transcends all these kind of physical limitations. And I think the Christian left really needs to remember that all the time because it's easy to get weighed down by those very limitations, I think. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can uh, support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, join our super secret Facebook group, The Magnificast Basement. Um, you won't regret it. A lot of people joined, so that must mean people are getting to the end of these episodes, for sure. So that's something. If you join, you'll learn about Church Home Early. You won't have to wait for the episode <laughs> to come out. Uh, it's a great time to say that this episode is sponsored in part by Church Home. No, I'm just kidding. That's no, not. Uh, we're, this podcast is powered completely by uh, the prayers we've gotten on that uh, app. And uh, <laughs> it's all prayers. It's all prayers this week. Um, <laughs> the music in this episode is by Amaria Armstrong. And the uh, outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. Uh, cool. See you next time. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. Decide what else are you gonna do? As we kissed in the alley by the Michigan theater, fall snow was blowing in the lights of the downtown. Saw a spark in your eyes, I just spoke it. Said we're gonna turn this whole place upside down. Then you said, my dear, do you really mean it? I said I won't really know what I feel right now I said poets lies, sometimes come true Stay awake with me, we'll see what we can do Poets lies, sometimes come true Stay awake with me, we'll see what we can do in our town For church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord.